Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Last week, Boris Johnson was charming the party faithful. We sent top government representatives to our sweatiest boîte de nuit to show that anyone could dance perfectly safely. And wasn't he brilliant, my friends? Let's hear it for John Bon Jovi. And this week, he jetted off to Marbella, squeezing in a quick holiday before Parliament returns. But in the meantime, back at home... There's a myriad of problems coming down the road, some of which are created by the positions he's uh, staked out. Those of us that can remember Black Wednesday and interest rates at 15% wonder... What's he gambling with here? Could the next few months cause the Prime Minister more of a headache than he's expecting? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Tim Shipman on Boris Johnson's Big Gamble. I'm uh, Tim Shipman, and I'm now the chief political commentator of The Sunday Times. And Tim, Boris Johnson is on holiday this week, slightly controversially. He seems to have been in good spirits of late. Tell us about his mood at the Tory party conference last week. Well, Boris Johnson gave a bravura speech, packed with his trademark jokes. I read a learned article by some lawyer saying we shouldn't bother about pet theft. Well, I say to... Cruella de Vil QC. If, if you can steal a dog or a cat, then there is frankly no limit to your depravity. And also tried to explain what this levelling up agenda that he's been banging on about since he became Prime Minister is actually all about. You will find talent, genius, flair, imagination, enthusiasm everywhere in this country, all of them evenly distributed, evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. But he's in, he's in a good mood. The Tories still have a not overwhelming, but significant lead in the polls, despite two years of quite difficult times. And as far as he's concerned, he's now moving on to phase two of his government. He's got Brexit done. He survived Covid, literally survived it himself. And now it's about delivering what he talked about on the steps of Downing Street. When I stood on the steps of Downing Street, I promised to fix this crisis. And we are going to deal with the biggest underlying issues of our economy and society, the problems that no government has had the guts to tackle before. When you talk to people in government, all they talk bang on about is delivery, delivery, delivery. And a lot of Tories looked at the conference season and thought that they'd had a pretty decent run of things. There's very little internal opposition to Boris Johnson, which 
to be frank, is something he cares about probably more than most prime ministers do. He's a little bit paranoid, always looking over his shoulder. Some of his former aides will say he likes to be the big man. You know, when he was a kid, he wanted to be king of the world, and now he wants to be king of the Tory party, and he doesn't want too many great pretenders to his throne. And at this stage, as we're speaking, it's all panned out quite well for him. You wrote that even Boris couldn't quite believe his luck at how the conference had gone. Yeah, no, he strode into a, one of these drink stews, of which there are dozens every evening at conference, and sort of said, well, it appears to be going uh, surprisingly well. I forget the exact words, but nobody's really kicking off. We, perhaps we ought to create some drama and crisis. But of course, under previous prime ministers, the person generally creating the chaos, strife and crisis at Conservative Party conference was Boris Johnson himself. Dave, I've made it a rule at these conferences never to disagree with Jamie Oliver. There was one where he made a bunch of inflammatory comments about shoving pasties through the school gates at a time that David Cameron's government was trying to uh, control fast food in schools. I was put in a pen and pelted with pork pies by the media. On another occasion, he deliberately turned up, made a huge rally speech inside the conference centre I want to also to congratulate my friend Philip Hammond uh, for predicting that I will never become Prime Minister, which is the first Treasury forecast in a long time to have a distinct ring of truth. And as... Which overshadowed Theresa May on the main platform. I will reveal that I have one overriding anxiety about the current political scene. And he did this time and time again, and he absolutely loved doing it. And now there is no Boris Johnson to Boris Johnson. His aides say he bumped into David Davis, who's another sort of troublemaker who likes throwing rocks from the, the back benches, and kind of said to him, you know, come on, Dee Dee, why aren't you um, causing more strife than you are? He may not have a disruptor on the scene, but he must have spent part of conference looking over his shoulder at potential competitors. How is his relationship with the Chancellor at the moment? It's a little better than it was, but, you know, on the Sunday Times, I spent most of the summer chronicling how difficult it had become. Back at the start of August, there were a lot of tensions over spending. And you've got two things here. You've got a sort of institutional separation and a personality policy separation. So number 10 wants to spend money, particularly in those northern seats that Tories run in 2019, wants to flash the cash around and convince those people that voting Tory was worthwhile. The Treasury always is an institution that wants to stop other departments spending money. The initial tensions came to a head because Boris Johnson kept preemptively announcing things that he had not cleared with his Chancellor of Exchequer, including this £200 million on a supposed new royal yacht, which no one in Whitehall wants to pay for. Sir Keir Starmer says your focus on uh, the yacht, £283 million, is pointless. You have become the party of crime and disorder. Would that be a waste of money, £283 million on the so-called yacht? Uh, we need somewhere where the, the, the UK can, can show itself off uh, to the world. And so I did a big piece at the start of the summer, and from there it just flowed on. Week after week we had these tensions. Then Rishi Sunak wrote to Boris Johnson about lifting the travel restrictions, the COVID travel restrictions, and effectively said, you need to back the economy now. Damaging the economy and tourism. In the letter partly leaked to the Sunday Times, the Chancellor says that the UK border policy is out of step with our international competitors. 
Boris Johnson didn't even see the letter until it was on the front of the Sunday Times. And he was absolutely furious about it. And then in a meeting, he basically threatened to demote Rishi Sunak to be his health secretary, which some of his aides suggest was in jest. Some of the people in the meeting suggest there wasn't a great deal of jest in it. Plans for a new amber watch list have been dropped by Boris Johnson after a backlash from Tory MPs. So we had this week after week after week. I think both sides then took a view that it was best to calm things down. There was a sort of agreement between Johnson and Sunak that Johnson would not make any preemptive announcements without clearing it with the Treasury. It's not just an institutional difference, it's a difference between the two of them. Boris Johnson likes spending money and Rishi Sunak is a fiscal conservative who doesn't. And you see that this week a little bit as well. Is it becoming a bit Brown and Blair? Because even after getting through conference OK... We now see this big spat with Kwasi Kwarteng. The business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has now made a formal request to the Chancellor to support industries affected by soaring energy prices. Treasury officials accused him of making up claims he'd already discussed the issue with them. Given that we've got a big budget and spending review coming up, I'm sure lots of ministers around Cabinet will be looking at how well Kwasi Kwarteng came out of that and how he's won his fight and will be wondering whether they can do the same. Absolutely. As we've discovered, Kwarteng has said, well, I need more money to prop up these businesses, and Boris Johnson likes propping up businesses, particularly because a lot of the ones that are likely to get this money are in those northern seats that he regards as sort of Boris land now. And the Treasury slapped down the business secretary pretty hard for suggesting that they might bail out some of these companies. And number 10 have sided with the business secretary. So you're absolutely right. The Treasury is now going to be inundated up to the 27th of October when the spending review and the budget are both uh, unveiled with ministers demanding more money. I mean, we had something in the paper at the weekend as well about Liz Truss, the the new foreign secretary. She's furious that Dominic Raab, her predecessor, agreed to the level of cuts in overseas aid that he appears to have done, and she's kicking off about that. So these rows are already simmering, and Rishi Sunak hoped and expected after those summer rows that the Prime Minister would have his back. And at the moment, it doesn't look like he, he does. But I don't think it's Blair and Brown. At six o'clock, Labour in turmoil. The Prime Minister's allies accused Gordon Brown of organising a coup. Blair and Brown were political soulmates who grew up together, shared an office. Gordon Brown thought he was going to be Prime Minister and it ended up being Tony Blair and Gordon Brown never quite forgave him and then Blair offered him a deal to go at a certain point and then didn't stick to it. So there was a proper kind of psychosis between the two of them, a total psychodrama. This is different. Boris Johnson is the boss and Rishi Sunak knows that. Rishi Sunak's already stellar young career has been greatly assisted by Boris Johnson. He holds his post at Boris Johnson's gift and they're not, in the conventional sense, rivals. He spends a lot of time cultivating Tory MPs. He goes to their constituencies. He has people in for drinks. That's what anyone with half an eye on the leadership is going to do. But Rishi Sunak is also a realist. He knows that most chants of the Exchequer are thought of as the next Prime Minister at some point in their careers, and almost none of them get the job. So we are starting to see some of the fault lines within the party. We're starting to see some of the divisions which will probably play out over the autumn. But in terms of the actual opposition, Boris Johnson, at the end of party conference season, does seem fairly unassailable. I mean, you tweeted that he now squats like a giant toad across British politics. Explain what you meant by that. 
Well, there's this thing, you know, if you're a very techie political geek, there's a thing called the Overton window, which everybody obsesses about. It's the sort of range of policies that are seen reasonable by the mainstream of voters. And this ebbs and flows. And you can see that certainly in economic terms, the Overton window since the economic crisis has shifted a bit to the left from where it was when the coalition was in government. There are people in the Labour Party who say when Ed Miliband was leader, a lot of the stuff he was touting then, energy caps and all that kind of thing, that's all now been stolen by the Conservative Party. So on the economy, certainly it's shifted to the left. And Boris Johnson, because he's always been a big spending Tory, is reasonably well suited to that. The interesting thing about Johnson is that he's also shifted it a little bit to the right as well. But as time has gone by, it's become clear to me that this isn't just a joke. They really do want to rewrite our national story, starting with, uh, with Herowood the Woke. Uh, we, we, really are, we, we really are at risk of a kind of know-nothing, cancel culture uh, iconoclasm. The kind of stuff that they're talking about, about some of these culture war issues on statues, um, to a lesser degree on the gender stuff, because I don't think Boris Johnson particularly wants to uh, get into that. But on things like British history, and certainly on immigration, he is much more right-wing than, say, David Cameron was, whilst being much more left-wing than David Cameron on the sort of economic issues. So in a sense, he's stretched his arms out to left and right, and I would say the political centre ground is now much wider than it was because of the personality and views of Boris Johnson. And that gives the Labour Party and Keir Starmer a lot less room to manoeuvre. The big question is whether this can survive Boris Johnson, whether this is a permanent shift, whether this is just opportunism, or whether only Boris Johnson could hold those sort of two flanks together, whether Rishi Sunak is a much more conventional conservative. And if he were in charge, he'd probably be less left-wing on the economy than Boris Johnson and less right-wing on immigration and cultural issues. So he, his his Overton window would, would shrink a bit. If it all collapses, everyone will say, why on earth did we let this man take over our party with these two fairly extreme sets of views? And that's the big question for the next decade of British politics, it seems to me. Coming up, as the battle lines start to be drawn for the next election, where does all of this leave Keir Starmer? But first... I'm Matt Chorley. I'm a columnist for The Times and presenter on Times Radio. And we try to cover all the biggest stories, bringing you politics without the boring bits. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So where does that leave Keir Starmer? Where does that leave Labour? 
I don't think they've got much room for manoeuvre, but curiously, they're in a better position than they were in two months ago as well. And I was talking to a Conservative special advisor last week who said, our conference went well, but I'm a bit worried about complacency because what we need to understand is that theirs went reasonably well as well. You know, there were people, don't forget, who were predicting that Keir Starmer might be out of a job by now if the conference went badly. And there were lots of things that did go badly. You know, there was a front bench resignation. There were people ridiculing a lot of what he was saying and he attempted to get a pretty radical rule change and he only got part of it. So on the face of it, it didn't look like a huge success. You then have the most Keir Starmer thing ever, which was to write a 12,000-word article for a left-wing magazine about what he really believes, which didn't manage to crystallise what he really believes into anything that you could describe more quickly. He then made a speech that lasted 90 minutes, which is far too long for a big speech. The questions we face in Britain today are big ones. How we emerge from the biggest pandemic in a century. How we make our living in a competitive world. The climate crisis, our relationship with Europe, the future of our union. These are big issues, but our politics is so small. And yet, most people who watched it thought, this is the bloke who is calm and confident, reasonably competent, and has, you know, improved his stock a little. Prime Minister, either get a grip or get out of the way and let us step up and clear up this mess. People are not frightened of him in the way that a lot of voters were of Jeremy Corbyn. And for that reason, you know, the Conservatives are more on their toes than they have been for a little while. But Starmer finds politics difficult. He doesn't seem to be a natural for it. He doesn't see the opportunities. Uh, a lot of people around him would be frustrated that he takes a long time to make a decision. He's not that ruthless about building dividing lines and making an issue of them. He'd rather out-debate Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's Question Time, which he frequently does, than score points, which is what a lot of MPs would think is the point of the exercise. And he seems, like a lot of Labour leaders do, slightly just too upset and angry about everything, whereas with Boris Johnson, much the best tool is ridicule, because that sort of gets to him much more. We did see Keir Starmer referring to Boris Johnson as a trivial man at party conference. It's easy to comfort yourself that your opponents are bad people. I don't think Boris Johnson is a bad man. I think he's a trivial man. I think he's a showman. Do you think that's likely to be their attack from now on? Yeah, that's certainly a good attack line for Labour. With all speeches and all insults, it tells you as much about the person making them as it does about the, the person on the other end of them. You know, clearly saying someone is trivial is a very big insult in Keir Starmer's world. Their polling and focus grouping will have shown them that a lot of the public is irritated by that. And actually, there was an interesting moment on Question Time after Boris Johnson's big speech where people were asked whether they liked the jokes and, and the sort of blustering through, which had obviously gone down very well with the Tory faithful. We don't want to hear jokes. We want some action. We want some support. There are serious things to talk about. There are serious things to do. Start acting. Stop joking. Can I, can I just ask, because... Is, is there anyone here who, who thought Boris's speech was exactly what the conference needed? Did you, are, you, are you agreeing or shaking your head? You're, no, you didn't. Well, look, look. And I think one person put their hand up. It's certainly a bruise that they should keep punching, but whether it can change minds, I think, is a slightly different point. Do you think he's worked out what to do with his own image yet? I mean, there was a point where Keir Starmer visited a Kellogg factory and described himself as Special K. Have you been dubbed Special K since your visit here? 
I've been dubbed Special K since I was born. Kia. K for Kia. Do you think he's worked out how to sell himself? Well, the short answer is I don't think he has yet. The best bit of his speech by a very long way was the first sort of 15 or 20 minutes where he talked about the values that he'd got uh, from his upbringing. From my dad, I understand the dignity of work. From my mum, I appreciate the nobility of care. We saw a bit more of the human Keir Starmer. From my work the principle that we are all equal before the law. But I don't think he has found a way of making being a meticulous lawyer sexy for voters. There's a senior figure in the Labour Party who worked for a former leader who has an interesting phrase about all this. He says that successful progressive leaders of the last 40 years, the really successful ones, have been actor lawyers. You think of Bill Clinton, you think of Tony Blair, And you think of Barack Obama. They were all lawyers, but they were all quite theatrical. They were all performance art in their politics. There's a real showbiz element. And this guy says, the problem with Keir Starmer is that he's a lawyer's lawyer. What I would say about Starmer is, it is telling when the pithiest summing up of a person comes from their opponent rather than themselves. Boris Johnson calls him Captain Hindsight and hammers him on that in the House of Commons all the time. Captain Hindsight needs to adjust his retro, his retro spectroscope because he's completely wrong. Captain Hindsight is rising rapidly up the ranks and has become general indecision. Captain Hindsight snipes continually from the sidelines. This government gets on with delivering on the people's priorities, Mr Speaker. And I know from focus groups that that's a phrase that has cut through with people, particularly during the COVID crisis. Starmer had a job to do there to try and hold the government to account, but a lot of the public just wanted to give the government the benefit of the doubt. They thought they were trying their best, even if that was inadequate quite often. What Starmer needs is something that cuts through in the other direction and gives people an equally pithy, positive assessment of himself. That's a little bit difficult. But in a sense, you sense with Starmer that he almost doesn't want that, that he's so serious a man that he regards that sort of thing as trivial itself, and he needs some people who are going to persuade him that they need to play a bit more politics. And there was something a bit Ed Miliband about the special K comments. A lot of people on the left were ruder about that than anybody on the right, people comparing him to David Brent and Alan Partridge. Once the public gets a view that you're a bit of a geek and you're a bit naff, it's quite hard to shake. And it's not going to be Captain Hindsight versus Special K at the next election, I predict. Talking of the next election... At the end of party conference season, are we now starting to see roughly what the battle lines will be? Well, Starmer's pitch was basically, we're better off when we're working together and pulling in the same direction. He tried to use the COVID crisis as a sort of example of how the country pulled together and look what we achieved. And what we need to do is do that when we're not in a pandemic, when we're not in a crisis. And that's almost a sort of advert for the way that Labour Party likes to do government. So that was his big argument. And it's quite a compelling one in lots of ways. On Boris Johnson's side, the election's really about two things. It's about persuading those people who, he, as he puts it, lent their votes to the Conservative Party in 2019, that they did not make a mistake by doing so, that there is some meaningful change to their lives, that they see new things being built, their high streets being revived, the transport infrastructure they didn't have, and some hope of retraining in a way that means that all their young people don't have to flee south if they want to have a productive career. Part two is dealing with the fallout of COVID. And they are very, very worried that particularly in the health service, 
you have a situation where there is now so much pent-up demand for elective operations, for treatments that were missed, that you need to pour a lot of money in and make a lot of effort to go and find the people who might get ill and deal with that. And that's why he did the sort of health and social care levy. And most people think a very large extra sum of money will probably have to go in that direction before this parliament is out as well. They need to then keep the old Tory base in the South suite a little bit by offering them a little bit of money back before the election. There are lots of traditional Conservative voters who are now starting to feel abandoned by this party, Um, you know, whether it's industry, business leaders. Where does this government stand on business? I think seeing it as business is too big a group because I think there are different opinions. The people who Boris Johnson's government is annoying are the people that are being taxed more, that are having to pay vast sums extra for fuel and who don't really have a prospect of a bailout. There's a lot of FTSE 100 firms who've seen a government that wants to tax them uh, until the pipsqueak to pay for all of their projects. And they're not happy about it at all. Some of the small businesses, certainly some of them are struggling, but I think there's a sort of small business mentality which is a bit more in concert with Boris Johnson's worldview. And there's the rich entrepreneur world, the hedge funders, the venture capitalists, who actually quite enjoyed the disruption of Brexit and who often are Conservative Party donors. A lot of those guys are a little bit concerned about the direction on tax, but are much more comfortable with the sort of Johnson buccaneering post-Brexit worldview. So I think it sort of breaks down a little bit. But certainly, this is a government that's not been terribly good at wooing those business leaders. But don't forget, if you go back to the referendum, a lot of those business groups like the CBI, they were regarded by the Vote Leave campaign as sort of incorrigible Remainers who complained and moaned. When Boris Johnson said F business, that was those people he was referring to. Matt Weston, Speaker. Uh, The Prime Minister famously said uh, F business in the context of Brexit. By logical extension, does he mean F my community? And it's to a degree those people who are getting uh, irritated again. And you don't have to speak to many people in number 10 or ministers to get a real sense of irritation with business leaders who think they just need to get a bailout, they just need to get more visas for people from overseas. And the government say, no, you need to train up people here and you need to pay them more. I think a lot of people have their doubts that that's going to be possible. They're going to be under constant pressure to let more workers in from elsewhere. And even if they did start paying people more, you've got an inflationary risk and and it's a double-edged sword anyway. But as far as business is concerned, there's a mixed picture. But This is a government that actually wants almost to pick a fight with business. Which is interesting because there doesn't seem to be a government plan for how you manage that transition. No, that's right. Number 10 is right to say that this has been a lingering theme of the Brexiteers ever since the referendum. But the only time I have been briefed by Downing Street that this is a central plank of this government's approach was about 10 days ago. And They now seem to be picking a fight over this out of a clear blue sky, not because they planned to, but because this fuel and tanker shortage led to a crisis. Now, everybody always says, don't waste a good crisis, but most of the people haven't got a lot of money sloshing about at the moment. We haven't had a plan for the transition. We didn't even know there was going to be a transition until uh, a couple of weeks ago. Parliament is coming back next week, and we're in the middle of what feels like a national crisis There are shortages, there are empty shelves, people have been queuing for petrol, energy bills are rocketing up, 
universal credit has been cut. We've just had a very damning report on the government's handling of COVID. I mean, is there a chance that Boris Johnson's position is actually weaker than it seems? Could we look back on this party conference and see it as the high watermark of Johnsonism? Yes, there's a myriad problems coming down the road, some of which are created by the positions he's staked out, and some of the economic policy is looks like it will fuel inflation rather than dampen it down. And there's a lot of people in this country who cannot remember meaningful inflation or interest rates rising. Pretty much everybody under the age of 40 has got very little experience of that in their day-to-day lives. Those of us that can remember Black Wednesday and interest rates at 15% wonder, what's he gambling with here? And so, yes, that's what I mean by the party being captive of Boris Johnson. There's a lot of people who think they've got to go along for this ride, but they know that it's going to be a turbulent ride. And they know that if he screws up, they'll all go down with him. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Sunday Times chief political commentator, Tim Shipman. You can find Tim's famous long reads about the inner workings of the Westminster Village at thetimes.co.uk if you've got a subscription or in print on Sundays. And you can catch his live analysis of Prime Minister's questions, PMQ's Unpacked, every Wednesday from 12 on Times Radio. The producers today were James Shield and Chris Wade, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. Tomorrow, we'll be back with part four of 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. If you've missed the first three parts, it's really worth starting at the beginning. You can find all the previous episodes in our feed or search for the Reporter podcast in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.